Hello, welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education. I'm your host, Joe Anderson. Today, we are talking with Lynn Lyons, a renowned psychotherapist who travels the country training educators and speaking with families about anxiety. She is the author of many books, including Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents. Welcome to the EdCast, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you on today to talk about this issue that seems to be plaguing so many kids, anxiety. Yes. Yeah. As someone who's been doing this work for a really long time, do you think anxiety is growing amongst kids? I do. Yeah. And I think actually, um, so it's, it's interesting, we track depression numbers um, far, not we, like I'm not doing the tracking, but, but the people that do the tracking pay attention to the tr- depression numbers so much more than the anxiety numbers. So the exact numbers are hard to get, but I think the overwhelming consensus among people who are working with anxious kids, people in schools, um, anybody who does this for a living is really seeing quite an uptick. And that's all across the board, young kids all the way to teenagers? Yeah. And I think that the thing with teenagers that is really coming to light, it's not a new thing, but it's getting the attention that it needs, is the pathway of anxiety into depression. And so if we know that anxiety is the number one mental health problem in the country, that this is, it's the number one reason why parents bring a child to see a mental health provider, and we're seeing this big uptick in depression in adolescence, anxiety is like the feeder school for, for the University of Depression. It, it just sort of it moves in that direction. So we're really seeing teens struggling with both of those things. Is there any reason why you think anxiety is, is growing? Um, yes. (laughs) Um, I I think that it has a lot to do, and this is interesting because I I just wrote a blog post about this, and it was talked about in the the article in the New York Times, too, is that there's so much focus on the culture. So everybody's talking to me about, well, it's the culture. It's the, what can we do about the culture? And what what I keep saying to all of these adults is that we're the culture. We can't sort of look at the culture and say, oh, it's that thing over there. I think that adults, I think the world has changed. Changed. I think that there is a real um, difference in the way we talk about safety and danger, even 10 years ago compared to now. I think that the access of technology and the, the overwhelming amount of information that parents are getting, and that kids are getting too, is really causing a lot more stress and worry. The more you know about everything that can possibly happen and the more pressure that you feel to live up to the expectations of everybody else everywhere else, the more it just builds and builds in kids. When does anxiety become problematic in a student? It becomes problematic when they're not able to do what we would consider the, the normal tasks of that age, normal developmental tasks. So if you've got a child who is not coming to school, that's a very dramatic um, indicator. But even less so if you've got a kid who's got a really, is having a difficult time learning and focusing, anxiety really hijacks your ability to learn and to attend. A lot of kids get flagged as having focus and attention issues 
and it's really there's a lot of anxiety going on. Um, so if you've got a kid who's not participating in social activities, if you've got a, a child who doesn't want to go to birthday parties or has a really hard time going and playing at a friend's house, or at an older age you've got a kid who's more isolating, who's dropping out of activities that mom and dad will say, gosh, they used to love doing this, and now they're not doing it. Um, kids who are having meltdowns when stepping into any kind of challenge, and that might be an academic challenge. It might be taking a test. It might be um, doing a presentation in class. It might be ordering in a restaurant. But whenever we see the anxiety showing up in a way that it interrupts what we would consider like, gosh, you don't have to feel completely comfortable doing this, but you should be able to step into it. That's when it really is flagged as a problem. Right. So not like, for instance, when a child might be worried about taking a test and study and then takes the test and stops worrying. The worrying would continue. Would that be considered the problem? Right. And, and, and or so, so the, the real the go-to strategy of, of anxiety, right, if we sort of personify the anxiety, it's all about avoidance. So, and, it, and it's all about trying to create certainty and create comfort. So you may, say you're worried about, now I remember taking my, my sons to get their driver's license, and gosh, they were nervous, and I was nervous. I'm sitting waiting for them to come back from the drive, and my heart rate is, is up a little bit, and I'm feeling a little like this. All of that is normal. When, when worry takes over, you're exactly right, is that, is that there's no end to it. And it'll just grab on, to, it'll grab on to the driver's test. And then when you're done with the driver's test, well, it'll grab on to something else. Or if you're avoiding going and taking your driver's test anyway because you cannot tolerate feeling uncomfortable or feeling uncertain. In your work, training educators, you're traveling around and, and you're meeting with many educators in schools. Mm-hmm. What are you hearing from educators about this? I am hearing um, <laughs> they, are, they are feeling overwhelmed. They are feeling ill-equipped. I think what I hear a lot is that what is being done isn't working, and they're trying to figure out what they can do to, 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 to help solve the problem. Um, and, and one of the problems is that we're trying to eliminate worry and eliminate the anxiety. So the more you try and eliminate it and get rid of it, rather than teach kids the skills of, of tolerating it or what to do when the worry shows up, then that's when educators feel like, gosh, we've got all these accommodations in place and we're supposed to be not letting, not making this kid do this or this kid do that, and how do we, how do we teach them when we're not allowed to trigger their worry? And all of that, in my opinion, is really just going down the wrong path. Um, so I talk to educators a lot about how do we learn how to manage worry and anxiety rather than focusing on getting rid of it. Like, for example, distraction techniques are just, just not, the research doesn't support them and they don't really work. Um, and then the other big thing I hear from educators is that they are being asked to do things by parents, by outside providers, by physicians, by pediatricians, um, and a lot of that has to do with not um, making sure the child doesn't get anxious or making sure the child doesn't get worried. And they just feel, educators just feel like that's just impossible to pull off, and they're exactly right about that. 
The New York Times article touched upon this, uh, that there seems to be these different responses in schools, ranging from special spaces for children to go when they have anxiety. I don't know if that's called like a 504 plan, all the way to programs where students are working to confront their anxieties. And I think you just made it clear that one response is better than the other. Yes, I I really think so, because in, in, in my work, my goal is always to teach skills. I'm very concrete as a therapist. And so if the goal is, let's make sure the worry doesn't show up, or let's make sure the worry isn't triggered, well, that sounds good in the short term, but it, you, you can't make that. That's just not realistic. And the world doesn't work that way, and school doesn't work that way. So it, it, it's sort of the analogy I often give is that if, if you have a kid that lives around water, and that child doesn't know how to swim, you can either work really hard to make sure the child never ends up in the water, or you can work really hard to make sure that if the child falls into the water that they have some skills to deal with it. And I think that the more that we remove kids, the more that we set it up so that so that they're not experiencing worry, they're not, um, they're not going to feel uncomfortable, they're not going to feel overwhelmed ever, I just think that's unrealistic. So it's really, for me, it's about equipping kids with the skills and the, in the information that, that this is going to happen. And so how do we retrain your brain? How do we give you some skills? How do we give you a shift in your attitude and your approach to this so that it doesn't take over your life? Because we just, we just can't get rid of it. It's just not the way it works. Our brains are not capable of getting rid of worry. It's just not going to happen. Okay. So for the teachers who might be listening... They are arguably not given some mental health training like a school clinician has. Right. But they are also the front lines, essentially, when it comes to being with students. So are there simple ways for someone who's a teacher to intervene and help keep an anxious student in the classroom? Yes, and... and I, I sort of cringe a little bit at the word simple because we all want these quick fixes and, right. and it doesn't really work that way. And I think any teacher would sort of say, gosh, we love the idea of simple, but, you know, come and hang out in our classroom for a day. And, um, <laughs> right. Um, so I think one of, the, one of the starting places has to be um, that there has to be the child and the, and the parent and the school have to be all talking the same language. So if we talk about a simple fix, one of the things that I do frequently when I've got an anxious kid is that I will just have a conversation with a parent and the school and the classroom teacher. I do a lot of half-an-hour conversations with the classroom teacher as the school year starts, and here's what I say. So when the worry shows up, we want to have a name for the worry. Let's, let's literally give it a name. Let's call it Fred or let's call it Sylvia or let's call it Pete. And one of the things that you can do is get familiar with what worry says. Worry is very redundant. It's very repetitive. It's some version of, ah, you can't handle it because its goal is certainty and comfort. And so I will have the child and and the teacher come up with a signal. It might be, you know, touch your nose or they go by and just touch their shoulder. And that means that the teacher is recognizing that Pete has shown up. And in the 
in the child's desk or in their pocket or whatever, there is an index card. On one side of the index card, we've written the three things that worry always says, which is, you know, you can't handle it, or you're terrible at math, or you're not going to be able to do this, and your tummy is going to hurt. And then on the other side of the index card, what are three responses that the child can have to the worry? Not about eliminating it, but, but a, a statement that says, worry, I know you're going to show up during math, and I'm learning how to handle it, or I'm tired of you bossing me around, or for an older child, you are trying to make me feel incompetent and I'm not buying what you're selling. So just those kind of encouraging statements that, that teach, the, teach the child, teach the student to have a direct conversation with their worry. It's not about eliminating the content of what you worry about. It's about changing the process of interacting with the worry when it shows up. And that's what I talk to teachers about when I do when I do teacher trainings. And one of the things I think that's interesting about that is it removes any kind of stigma in a way because the child then isn't singled out as right. much, right? They're not getting right. up and leaving the room. They're sort of dealing with it in almost a discreet way, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah because they feel embarrassed and they feel ashamed. And I'm not against kids leaving the classroom if they have to because I want to protect their dignity. It's not like we're going to make them have a meltdown in front of their peers. If they leave their classroom, I want them to be doing some work when they leave, you know, the same sort of thing, like we were talking about school nurses, right? If you're going to show up at the school nurse's office, well, the school nurse is going to say, all right, so your worry's in charge. Let's go through what we do about it. And so the more we can get them to stay in the classroom and just have that quick interaction with the teacher, or if they have to go see the school nurse or the counselor and they have that quick interaction so that they can get back into the classroom and get back to learning. It's sort of like we're helping them reset and reboot. The more that we buy into worries demand that everything has to be calm and comfortable and certain, the more trouble that, that the child is going to have because we're setting them up for avoidance, which is the exact opposite of what we want to do. But yeah, the more discreet things you can have in the classroom, and again, this all has to be laid out ahead of time. You, you, you can't do it in the moment because that's not when the learning is going to happen. So even just a 10-minute conversation, a little planning ahead of time, a little thinking ahead so that when the worry shows up, the teacher and the student have a plan that they're working on together. And it's not a plan of avoidance. That's my that's my biggest sort of pet peeve, I guess, is that plans are often of avoidance or elimination, and it's really more about changing the interaction. And I imagine there is ranges of how severe anxiety a student may have. Yep, just like there's ranges in anything, you know. Um, and so there are some kids who the worry shows up and they, they really can sort of... It, it, manage it on their own or they need a little bit of cueing and they grab onto the tools. Certainly in my practice, I have kids that come to see me and boy, they take these tools I give them and they run with them and the family just runs with them. And then there are other kids where it's either gone on too long or for whatever reason, it's more debilitating. And so we have to just, you know, chip away at it with, with a little more patience and a little more persistence. But I'm all about going right in at it. I'm not, I, you know, as a therapist and as a, as a trainer, I'm not about, ooh, taking little tiny steps and being really careful, right? I'm going to give the kids information and let's go. We're going to go at this thing. And is, do you feel the same way about parents? Yeah. No, parents are a critical part of it. In fact, I don't see kids alone in my practice. 
Um, it doesn't make any sense to me to work with a child without having very significant parent involvement. Um, so that's a requirement um, to work with me is that there has to be parent involvement. And I say to teachers all the time, in this way, my job is easier than your job because people are coming to me on purpose. They're paying me money. You know, generally they're going to listen to what I have to say, and I can demand that a parent shows up. Teachers often don't have that access, nor do they have that cooperation. But ideally, we, we, parent training, if I had to pick, if there was an eight-year-old and somebody said, you can only see the parent or you can only see the kid, I would always choose the parent, well, no, I shouldn't say always, I would almost always choose the parent to work with because that coaching is really, really critical. This is a family thing. It's a generational thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't show up in isolation very often in a child with two very laid-back parents. It's just not the way this thing works. So for the parents who may be listening, send your kid to school and <laughs> yeah. well, the message. send them to school, but, but there has to be there has to be that front loading. There has to be a plan ahead of time. Just like, you know, if you've got a kid who doesn't know how to swim, we don't just throw them in the water anymore, right? This isn't nineteen thirty five. We're not like, you know, suck it up. <laughs> has to be a plan. But getting the child to move forward, as soon as you start playing the avoidance game and with school refusal, I'm sure that educators listening have seen this, uh, four days turns into eight months very quickly. So the general consensus with school refusal is that you want the child in the building as soon as possible and for as long as possible. Those plans where they come in for 30 minutes and go home and then come in for 45 minutes and go home, those are not really effective. So would you say that's the most important thing, just getting them there in the building? Or is there something else you'd say is the most important thing an educator can do to respond? Well, if you've got a kid who's, if you've, if you've got a student who's not going to school, then first priority is getting them in the building for sure. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you reference those programs where they create a safe space in schools and that kind of stuff. And I definitely get, they are negotiating with the anxiety because they're trying to get that child into school. And that's a really high priority. So I understand that. Once they're in school, then there really has to be skill building. You cannot do what you don't know how to do. So if worry shows up and nobody has given you or given the parents or given the teachers any strategies to deal with worry when it shows up, strategies that are not about elimination and not about avoidance, you're not going to get very far. You're right in that we really want to get the kid, we really want to get the child in the building as soon as possible and for as long as possible. And with little kids, I'll say to parents, you know, if you've got to pick them up over your shoulder and carry them in, do it. It's harder when you've got a 15-year-old, of course, but getting them in the building is essential. The longer they're in the building, the more they're in the classroom, the better off we are when we're dealing with anxiety. Any final thoughts that you might have for educators or even parents on this issue that we didn't talk about? I think that, um, unfortunately, where we have gone and where things have moved is um, sort of making sure that children know everything and that they're comfortable ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And although that feels so intuitively caring and supportive, it's it's actually backfiring big time. So it's not about... You know, I, I see a lot of times we'll say, well, he's, he's really anxious, and so we have to make sure that he knows exactly what's going to happen during the day. 
And if you think about this anxiety thing as a cult leader that makes rules and is demanding that people follow the rules, that's when this thing really gets some momentum. So it's, it's, it's not about giving the, the cult leader what it wants. It's about teaching kids how to manage the cult leader when it shows up and teaching parents to manage the cult leader when it shows up. And, the, and, and it's really about connecting with kids. It's not about saying, you know, off you go and you have to handle this on your own. It's really about pulling them close and connecting and supporting and loving and validating and having the anxiety over there, and I'm, you can't see me, but I'm pointing my finger, having the anxiety over there, trying to pull families in and having us standing with that child and saying, we are not going to let anxiety be the boss of you. So we've got to get, everybody's got to get out of the cult. And that includes the teachers, it includes the parents, and it certainly includes the children. Well, thank you so much, Lynn. There's some very helpful tips, I think, in here for parents and teachers. For people who might be interested in trying to catch you speaking um, or just following what you're doing, where can they find out more? If you go on my website, which is Lynn Lyons nh.com um, you'll go on you'll see my uh, calendar of events many of the workshops and presentations that I do for families are free um, a lot of schools sponsor me and come in to do workshops um, so there's tons of stuff on there to check out great well thanks again Lynn my pleasure this is the Harvard EdCast a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education thanks for listening 